This is Ethan Siegel, and welcome back to the Starts With a Bang podcast. Earlier this month, the LIGO collaboration shook up the world by announcing the first ever direct detection of gravitational waves. This was a tremendous accomplishment that validated Einstein's general theory of relativity in a whole new way that had never been tested directly before. There was lots of theoretical evidence that gravitational radiation should exist. It's an inevitable consequence of Einstein's general theory of relativity and and indirect evidence had already been seen for it in the binary orbits of double pulsars. As these two very dense neutron stars orbit one another, we notice that their orbits start to decay. Their orbital period goes down over time, over the decades that we've observed them. This is indicative that it's losing energy somehow, that this gravitational energy is somehow being lost. And the only consistent way to do that with Einstein's theory of gravity is to have that energy radiated away in the form of gravitational waves or gravitational radiation. This all goes back to Einstein's concept of space-time. Einstein's theory of gravity replaced Newtonian gravity, where masses communicated with each other through some magical force called an action at a distance. It was instantaneous, and space and time were fixed quantities. Not so in Einstein's theory. In Einstein's theory of relativity, space-time is on one side of the equation, and matter and energy is on the other. Whenever you have matter and energy present, it changes the shape of space and time itself. So if you have one mass present, and then you have a second mass that you put in, that second mass, while to us it will appear to accelerate, is actually just following its most natural path, as dictated by the curvature of the space-time caused by the presence of the other mass. Gravitational waves emerge when you have this situation where you have one mass present in space-time and another mass that is accelerated due to the presence of that first mass. These two masses change the fabric of space-time as they orbit one another, as they exert their gravitational influence on one another. And the way space-time responds is by rippling away. A little bit of energy gets lost. It's very very, very small. If you said, well, the Earth orbits the Sun, it would take 10 to the 150 years, or more than 10 to the 140 times longer than the age of the universe for that orbit to decay. But in other systems, where the masses are larger and the orbital distances are much smaller, this gravitational radiation can become very important very quickly. Most waves that we're used to are a little bit different from gravitational waves. We're used to scalar waves, things like water waves, where you have peaks and troughs, and the wave travels at a certain speed. We have vector waves like light, where the light travels at the speed of light, but oscillates in terms of its fields. It has electric and magnetic fields that are perpendicular to each other that rise and fall in amplitude as the wave progresses. Gravitational radiation 
radiation is a little bit different. This gravitational radiation, as it passes through a region of space, causes a slightly different phenomenon. It causes a stretching and a compressing in two mutually perpendicular directions. So if you were standing there and a wave were to pass right through your chest, you would find yourself stretched in the horizontal direction and compressed in the vertical direction. And then you would find yourself stretched in the vertical direction and compressed in the horizontal direction. It would be like if you took a tennis ball and squeezed it from the sides and watched it expand in the top and bottom. And then you compressed it from the top and bottom and saw it squeeze out at the sides. Gravitational radiation will do that. It will do that in two mutually perpendicular directions, both perpendicular to the direction of the wave's propagation. So unlike these other waves, gravitational radiation has what we call a quadrupolar property. In addition, unlike electromagnetic radiation that gets weaker as 1 over the distance squared as you move away from it, gravitational radiation, because it has a different origin and it originates from a different theory, the radiation loses energy at a different rate. So whereas if something is 10 times as far away from you in light, that light will be 1 one-hundredth as strong. It'll be only 1% of what you started with. If you're 10 times as far away from a gravitationally radiating source, it's only going to be one-tenth as weak as it started off with. It's only going to decrease by 1 over r instead of 1 over r squared. So you can have something much farther away and still have it be very strong when it comes to gravitational radiation. What this means for detecting a gravitational wave is if you can build your apparatus sensitive enough, you could detect objects that are emitting gravitational waves in principle all the way out to the edge of the universe as far as you can perceive. Because the gravitational radiation, the gravitational waves, they don't lose their energy and their amplitude as quickly as other forms of radiation. It also means if you can build a detector that's going to be sensitive in two mutually perpendicular directions, if something will be sensitive to a compression or expansion in two mutually perpendicular directions, horizontal and vertical, uh, length, width, depth, pick any two, you're going to be in great shape. If you can build a detector sensitive to that, you can find gravitational radiation if you hit on the right frequency. The original attempts to detect gravitational waves were to build these giant bars. These metal bars that a man named Joseph Weber put together, they're called Weber bars. And if they would oscillate at a very particular frequency, they would be sensitive to a frequency of gravitational waves. So if you saw this ringing signal in these bars, that meant you had detected gravitational waves. Now after decades of many false positives that were not reproducible, the Weber bar concept was abandoned, as it was expected that gravitational radiation wouldn't exist exist at those frequencies and amplitudes that the bars were sensitive to. But the LIGO concept is supposed to be sensitive to objects that are present within our universe. The way LIGO works is brilliant. They've built two mutually perpendicular arms, perfectly straight arms, 
so perfectly straight that they can't even follow the curvature of the Earth that are four kilometers in length in either direction. They place mirrors inside each of these perpendicular arms so that if you shoot a laser down it, the laser light will reflect off of the mirrors on both ends, back and forth, back and forth, thousands of times. This way they can act as though they're an arm of thousands of kilometers in length rather than just a few kilometers in length, and that allows them to be sensitive to longer wavelength gravitational waves. By taking a single beam of laser light, splitting it so that it goes down these two perpendicular paths, bounces back and forth a fixed number of times, and then you bring these two beams back together, you can reconstruct a very specific interference pattern. This way, if a gravitational wave passes through your detector, what's going to happen? Well, since the arms are perpendicular, one will compress while the other stretches, and then that one will compress while the first one stretches, and it will oscillate back and forth in frequency and in amplitude with the gravitational wave. If you build more than one of these detectors, you can not only find a signal, you can use the multiple detectors and two different orientations to determine where in the sky this signal originated from. So you take a single laser beam and you split it into two, and you take these two beams and you send them down the two perpendicular arms of LIGO. You reflect them back and forth thousands of times, creating this artificial thousands of kilometers path length. You hope a gravitational wave passes through, changing the arm length, and then you bring the light back together, looking for changes in the interference pattern that two laser beams will produce. If that pattern shifts in one direction and then the other in a predictable periodic fashion with a certain frequency and a certain amplitude, you've detected gravitational waves. So LIGO is going to be sensitive to certain frequencies and certain amplitudes of signal. And what that means for what it can see is it's going to see the fast things because the path length, even at a few thousands of kilometers, is still very small. So it needs objects that are going to be extremely close together. And those are going to be the smallest black holes because the smallest black holes have the smallest event horizons so they can orbit each other more quickly than a more massive black hole. So any black holes of a few hundred solar masses or less that spiral into each other in this highly curved space-time will emit ripples, and they will emit the ripples that LIGO is most sensitive to. That's what we expect LIGO's going to see at first. So what we did was we set the theoretical work, the numerical relativists, to calculate exactly what this signal should look like in gravitational waves and come up with templates for experimentalists to look for to see is the signal that's going to show up in multiple detectors going to match one of these templates that they created, both for two approximately the same solar mass black holes to two very different mass black holes. And this could span the range of from just a few solar masses all the way up into the hundreds.
Now, LIGO finally, after more than eight years from 2002 to 2010 of proving it could experimentally reach the right design sensitivity, was shut down and upgraded over a period of five years at a cost of some $620 million. To finally reach a sensitivity where it could conceivably detect these merging black holes in the universe out to a distance of more than a billion light years. Well, this machine was turned on in September of 2015 and on September 14th they saw a signal they analyzed it and they checked it and they double checked it and they made sure that it was robust and they submitted it for peer review and finally earlier this month in February of 2016 they announced what they had seen two black holes, one of about 36 solar masses, one of about 29 solar masses, had spiraled into one another, merged together, and formed a single black hole that was less massive than either of the progenitors. There was an incredible amount that we learned from this signal. First off, it was seen in two separate detectors located at different points on Earth. One was in Washington State, one was in Louisiana. Both detectors saw a signal that matched the same template, a template consistent with having a black hole of about 36 solar masses merge with a black hole of about 29 solar masses. There were three stages to a merger, the in-spiral phase, the actual merger phase, and then a ring-down phase. The amount of energy emitted in gravitational radiation taught us that the total amount of mass that was inputted into the system, the original 36 plus 29 solar masses, about 95% of that mass wound up in the final black hole. But 5% was emitted. 5% was missing. That 5% was turned into pure energy, into energy not in the form of light or supernova remnants or anything like you might expect, but in the form of gravitational radiation. For those brief 20 milliseconds of a merger, the amount of energy, three solar masses, was converted into pure gravitational radiation via Einstein's E equals mc squared, and that total amount of power outshone all the stars in the entire visible universe during that time. There were also a number of interesting physics things we learned as a result of this. The amount that the Earth compressed as the gravitational waves passed through it was less than the width of a proton. It was something like 10 to the minus 17 meters for the entire Earth. There was a gamma ray burst associated with it. NASA's SWIFT satellite that looks for gamma ray bursts found one, observed one, just 0.4 seconds after the gravitational radiation arrived. This is unexpected because gamma ray bursts were thought to occur from the mergers of neutron stars. So why did this happen? Perhaps there were accretion disks around the black holes or other forms of mass that orbit them and they were accelerated heated, and caused to emit radiation during the merger. But that's something we're still not sure of, and we're hopeful that as LIGO finds more and more signals, that we'll start to figure this one out.
We also know that the speed of gravity has to be incredibly close to the speed of light. That 0.4 second arrival time difference gives us the best ever direct measurement of how exactly close to the speed of light gravitational waves are. We also know that if the graviton, the hypothetical spin to particle that carries the gravitational force, if it has a mass, thanks to the LIGO observations, its mass is less than 1.6 times 10 to the minus 22 electron volts, or more than 10 to the 27 times lighter than the electron. So if it's not massless, it's really, really, really close. This was an incredible technical achievement by the LIGO team, but what it's important to realize is that this is just the start. We expect to see at least five more events similar to this of two merging black holes every year. It's very likely since LIGO's been on since September that they have more of these and that they just released the first one to be sure and get their foot in the door, but there are likely many more to follow. There are other types of gravitational wave sources out there as well that LIGO likely isn't sensitive to. There are supernovae, both core collapse and type 1a. There are neutron star neutron star mergers. There are white dwarfs that inspiral into one another. There are supermassive black holes that orbit and merge with one another. There are ultramassive black holes billions of times the mass of our sun, where these super, super massive ones, ones more massive than pretty much anything else in the universe, orbit one another and eventually merge together. And finally, there are leftover gravitational waves from the end of inflation, from the phase of the universe that set up our Big Bang. We hope someday, although LIGO won't be sensitive to these, we hope someday to have the technology working to try and detect them all. This isn't a pipe dream either, or something where we need to rely solely on indirect detection. We have proposed missions that should be able to detect these. There's LISA, a laser interferometer space antenna, which is similar to LIGO, except instead of having a single laser gets split into two down two different arms, this would have three separate observatories orbiting at distances tens or hundreds of thousands of kilometers separated from each other. This could detect lower frequency gravitational waves and hence gravitational waves that arise from longer period orbits. This is what you would use to find supermassive black hole mergers or smaller objects that spiral into and merge with the supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. You can build BBO, the Big Bang Observer, an even more advanced version of this, where you would have basically three different LISAs in orbit around the sun at where the Earth is and at each of the two Lagrange points, L4 and L5, that make an equilateral triangle around the sun with Earth at one of the vertices. What this would do is this would enable you to measure the incredibly long ones. This would allow you to measure ultramassive black hole orbits like OJ287, no relation to Simpson, that has a hundred solar mass black hole in orbit around a many billion solar mass black hole. 
This is an orbit that takes 11 to 12 years to complete, and yet we've already discovered this object. If we were to build BBO today, we would see the gravitational waves from this phenomenon. And finally, for even longer orbits, for the most massive ones, we can use pulsar timing. There are pulsars located in globular clusters. So if you observe one globular cluster with many known pulsars inside, if a gravitational wave passes through one, what you'd be able to see is a glitch in the pulsars. And if these glitches lined up in a very particular way, you could extract that gravitational wave signal from it. The International Pulsar Timing Array and the Nanograv collaboration is planning to come online and detect these. And finally, things like BBO, and if you built a Pulsar Timing Array or LISA to a low enough sensitivity, you could in fact detect the gravitational waves left over from the Big Bang. My dream mission is that they go with Big Bang Observer. In the 2030s, NASA has not yet chosen its decadal mission, its flagship mission of the 2030s. And even though it's still just a concept design, if they invested enough in Big Bang Observer, we can have the ultimate gravitational wave observatory in the next 20 years. There's plenty of hope for the future, including the European Space Agency's ELISA mission, the Evolved LISA mission, that should detect the first gravitational waves from these supermassive black holes. So it's happening. Gravitational wave astronomy is no longer a pipe dream. It's not even a thing of the future. It's our present, and it's our first look at the universe in a whole new form of information. It's not even fair to call it light. This is radiation in the form of gravity itself. The Starts With a Bang podcast is made possible from our Patreon donors, so I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. I'd like to thank Bakhtiar, Robert J. Hansen, Thomas Sola, Denier, Igor Mitrofanov, Nick Tomlinson, Rafal Wojtuk, Pedro Texera, Kathy Reese, Brian Terry, Danny, Denise Arnaud, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Bob Wilson, Adam Rabung, Andrew T. Douglas, Weller Tractor Salvage, Richard Jousey, Amira Sosnick, Mark Bradshaw, Jim Cummings, Michael Mason, Sidney Atwood, Christopher Wetmore, Willie Keplinger, Harry Plumley, John Mithot, Jose Enrique, Rachel Merritt, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Nick McCann, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Daniel Aitken, Radek Nesbeda, Patrick Dennis, Chris Hilly, Richard White, Joe Latone, DGE, John Seal, Fletch, Philip Radilovic, Nathan Heston, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opachik. Thanks everyone for all your support, and I'll see you back here next month on the next Starts with a Bang podcast. <laughs>